Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was filled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Thank you, Ingrid. Good morning, my name is Nathaniel. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I have the privilege of serving with our young people here at Bray Park. Uh, And I also have the honour of opening up this passage from God's Word with us here this morning. But being on holidays, we have a lot of kids with us here this morning. So I've got a question for all of you. Have you ever made a really big promise? Or has someone ever made a really big promise to you? Maybe you promised mum and dad that you're definitely going to clean your room and it was a really big promise because your room was really, really messy. Or maybe mum and dad promised a really good reward if you did clean your room. Whatever that promise was, was it made good? Did they actually do it? Or are you still waiting for that to happen? How about everybody else? Um, What are some big promises that you've made in your life? Uh, What are maybe promises made to old friends? Maybe you've made the deep promises involved in marriage. Maybe promises to your children. Uh, Perhaps you've taken out a a home loan and you've got uh, a promise to pay back the bank an exorbitant amount of money every single uh, month. Maybe promises to yourself about goals you're going to achieve. We, We make these promises every single day and the truth is that God also makes promises. And our passage today is all about how God fulfills and keeps the greatest promise in all of world history. That is the promise made by God that he would send a true king, a perfect saviour who would make a way for all people to be right with God. And that is what Christmas is all about. God keeping his promise to send a saviour. And in today's passage, uh, we're going to have a look at the three different promises that are kept about the nature and the, of, the, of this coming king. And we're going to see how these three promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, 
this book of Matthew, it has so many fulfilled promises in it because Matthew wants us to see and realize that Jesus' birth wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just God making up things on the fly going, oh, there you go, I'll chuck him in there. No, this had been the plan all along. God had made many, many promises about what this Messiah would be like, what would happen when he came. And Matthew goes to great lengths to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills every single promise. Because he wants us to know that there is nothing which can stop God from fulfilling his promises and from keeping his promises to his salvation plan. Now, over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here with us, we've been working through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew in our series, Upside Down Christmas. Uh, Last week, Pastor Adam shared about the wise men who came from the East, uh, and we looked at the reactions of different people, the reactions of the wise men to Jesus, the reactions of the religious leaders to Jesus. And last week, we also heard mention of this King Herod guy, He was the ruler of Judea at the time, and this week, he comes into focus. Because if you remember, uh, the wise men, they came to King Herod and they asked him, where is the king of the Jews? Now, Herod was the king of the Jews, so this, this question concerns him a little bit. So he sends the wise men off to Bethlehem, uh, where the prophecy said the Messiah would be born. And then he tells them to send word back to him so that he too may go and worship this king, which really means kill this king. Because Herod sees this baby, this promised Messiah who would fix the problem of sin in the world, Herod sees him as a threat to his rule, and he wants to neutralize that threat. So God warns the wise men not to return to Herod, as we heard from Caroline just earlier, and they go home a different way. But It doesn't take long for Herod to realize that he's been tricked. And he is furious. And we see him unleash that fury in the passage this week. But we also see God at work above and over the evil of Herod. Because God is working through all that Herod does to keep his salvation promises. So let's have a look at those three promises that are fulfilled by Jesus Uh, who is God's promised saviour and God's perfect king. Now, kids, hopefully at the door you've got a a little handout where you've got a colouring in sheet and there are spaces in there where you can fill in those three promises. Toby's got his sheet. If you can come to me after the service with all three promises filled in, I've got a bag of lollies and I've got a lolly for you. So those three promises, write them in, there's blanks there for you. Now... Our first prophecy comes in the context of a dire warning about King Herod's intentions. In verse 13, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and he urges him to flee because Herod plans to kill the baby Jesus. So Joseph does he, he does flee. He flees off to faraway Egypt. And Matthew comments that this fulfills a promise made by God. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is a quotation of a passage in Hosea, Hosea 11, verse 1, which might at first glance seem to be a little bit odd, because when you look at that passage, it's talking about how God calls his nation of Israel, the people in the past, out of Israel, out of bondage, out of slavery. But in the Bible, whenever a small part of the Old Testament is quoted, uh, the author is referring to the entire section there. 
And that entire section, Hosea chapter 11, is all about how God has continually showed his love to his people, but how they have continually turned away and failed to follow him. The next line of the prophecy in um, Hosea says, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Now, I can identify with that. I can identify with being the people of Israel uh, because I certainly don't do a perfect job of following God. I don't do a good job of following God. Is that something which you're sometimes also challenged by? The fact that even though we try, we might put in effort to follow God, to do the right things, we continually fall short. Even though God keeps on loving us. But Jesus came to do what God's people failed to do. He did what we never could do. Because Jesus is the perfect Israel. God called him out of Egypt and into the promised land, but he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He lived that perfect life. And not only that, he did so. He came to die in our place so that he could take the penalty that our rebellion deserves. And even more than that, that we could take the blessing of eternal reunion with our God that his obedience deserves. So if you're here today feeling like you're not enough, uh, feeling like maybe you've come along and you feel like you don't belong in church, or maybe you feel like you just can't live up to all that God wants of us, know that Jesus came to be the perfect one. He came to be what we never could be. He came to make a way for us to be right with God. So we see God used the evil action of King Herod, his evil intentions, to show that Jesus was the promised true king who came so that all people who cannot be right with God by themselves have a way to be made right with God. And that is the first promise from the Old Testament that Matthew connects into the life of Jesus to prove that he was this coming saviour. The escape to Egypt. Got that one, kids? The second one is the weeping in Ramah. When Herod realises that he's been tricked by the wise men and that he probably won't be able to locate exactly which one of the baby boys born in Bethlehem recently was this promised saviour, he decides on a terrible and a tragic course of action. He decides to have all the baby boys in the little town of Bethlehem under the age of two killed. Now that is an incredibly traumatic and tragic and evil decision from a bad king. It seems almost unreal that someone would do that. They would go in and just slaughter all of the baby boys in a little village. But the sad reality of history is that this barbaric cruelty was just another day in the life of King Herod. He was well known for being a particularly, exceptionally brutal king. He was paranoid of any potential challenge to the throne to the point where he had three of his sons and one of his wives killed because he just suspected them of maybe planning to undermine him. His reputation spread so far that the emperor of Rome was reported to have said, it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's how bad it was being in Herod's family. And Herod knew that he was hated as a cruel king. 
So he preserved his name with a massive building program all across the whole region because he knew that people would try to destroy his memory once he was gone. But he made sure that he couldn't be forgotten. I recently had the opportunity to travel through Israel on a, on a study tour. And as you go through the land, everywhere you go, you see buildings constructed by Herod in his own unique style with his own unique stones carved so that people would know that he was the one who paid to have this, these places built. It's a massive standout. There's some pictures up there. All over Israel are these buildings built by Herod to magnify his own name. And Herod was so unpopular that when he was lying on his deathbed in Jericho, he ordered that a group of prominent men from all over the city of Jericho be brought together, and just before he died, they were to be killed so that when he died, there would be people mourning. So when Herod heard mention of a king of the Jews being born, it's no stretch of the imagination that he would have responded by doing something as terribly evil as killing every baby boy in the area. Now Bethlehem was a small village, so scholars estimate that's around 20 or 30 odd boys. And verse 16 captures the devastating pain that this brings, that evil act which was foretold so long ago. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, I haven't felt the pain of losing a child before. It's not something that I've experienced and it's not something that I can pretend to understand. Uh, I've seen others who have gone through that pain and so I've, I've seen that that is a shattering loss, just losing one child. But all the baby boys in a village, that's tragic and that's terrible. But even in this dark point surrounding the birth of Jesus, there are some details in the prophecy there which are meant to bring hope to this passage. You might have wondered as I was reading who the names Rama and Rachel might refer to. Well, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, and so she was the mother of much of the nation of Israel. And her burial place was at a place called Ramah, which is later identified in the Bible as being right next to Bethlehem. And so this prophecy uses these names of those Israelites because they are really important in another story in the Bible, because they are really important in the story of where the Israelites are taken away from their land they are conquered, their temple is destroyed, and they are taken into exile in Babylon. But in that story, there is hope, because even though it's one of the darkest moments in the history of God's people of Israel, it's a time where there is a promise of great hope. There is a promise of salvation, there's a promise of restoration through that darkness. And that's why Matthew chooses to use this particular quote, because he wants us to know that this devastation is a prelude to a blessing which is to come. Because despite the terrible lengths that Herod goes to to try and wipe out this new king, he can't overcome God. He can't outsmart God. He's not stronger than God. And God had preserved his new king throughout this. So in the midst of the Christmas story, there is this amazing little snippet of information which tells us that even though there is devastation and there is hurt, God works his plan and keeps his promises. And maybe that's something which you can relate to heading into Christmas. Maybe you come into Christmas um, and it brings up memories of 
hurt. It brings up difficult reminders of things which have happened in the past. Maybe you're coming into the Christmas season and there are things in your life um, that aren't so great at the moment. Maybe you're dealing with tragedy or dealing with a difficult time at the moment. If that is you, then the good news of Jesus is that he has stepped into our world with all the hurt and all the brokenness that it has, and he has made a way out of that. Because he knows what it is like to live through tragedy. He understands the depth of anything that you are going through, all of the hurt in your life, better than I'm ever going to be able to. And because of what he came to do, the news of his birth is good news which gives us light, even when life is at its darkest. God has made a promise that this is not the end and that Jesus will return a second time, this time in glory, this time as the end of all sadness and all pain forevermore. And this passage is showing us that our God is a God who keeps his promises. So we've seen that Jesus fulfills the prophecies around the escape from Egypt and the weeping in Ramah. And finally, there is this prophecy of the boy from Nazareth. Now, this final prophecy in our passage uh, relates to the town where Joseph and Mary moved to, where Jesus then grew up. Uh, We read in the final verses there that Joseph went back up to Egypt at God's direction after another message from an angel. But hearing that Herod's son Archelaus, who was a ruler much like his father, uh, that he was in charge, he instead moves his family back to the little town of Nazareth. Now, Matthew doesn't actually make a specific quotation here. He doesn't quote a particular prophecy from the Old Testament. Uh, Instead, he's choosing to quote and refer to a whole thread, a whole theme that runs throughout many, many prophecies in the Old Testament, which tells us that the Messiah wouldn't come from a big city or a fancy town, but rather he would come from a small and forgettable place like Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was seen as a particularly dodgy, good-for-nothing sort of place uh, back in the time when Jesus was around. It was a little town up in the foothills in a place called Galilee, and people from Nazareth, they were seen as being particularly suspicious, extra dodgy. Um, It was thought of in the same sort of way that uh, Queenslanders and Victorians like me might unite in thinking about New South Wales. You think, oh, hmm. In fact... When Jesus began his ministry 30 years later, uh, he runs into a man called Nathaniel, who I'm named after, actually. And Nathaniel hears about this Jesus of Nazareth guy, and he goes, what good could come from Nazareth? That's, That's how bad it is. But in pointing out that Jesus came from Nazareth, Matthew is drawing in this common theme from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from a humble background, not one of honoured royalty, not one of prestige. The true King Jesus didn't choose to be born in a high palace to have all the luxury that he deserves, but God himself grew up in a little dodgy country town. And that means that we have a true King who not only knows us and loves us in every single situation we're in, but we have a true King who understands and relates to us wherever we come from. Time and time again, God chooses the people and he chooses the places which we as humans would look over or reject. He chooses to use the poor and the broken over the rich and successful. He chooses to use those who know that they are sinful 
over those who think that they are perfect. He chooses to use places which are small and unimpressive over those which are physically awe-inspiring. In ancient times, uh, when the oldest son always got the wealth and the second or younger sons got nothing, they had no social status. How does God work consistently? He consistently works through the younger son Abel, not Cain, through the younger son Isaac, not Ishmael, through the liar and the younger son Jacob, not Esau, through little David, not his 11 big impressive older brothers. At a time when women who couldn't have children were disgraced and cast out of society, God chose to deliver his salvation plan to bring his saviour into the world through all kinds of women from all kinds of backgrounds. And he makes a point of it. He chooses the woman who is unloved and the woman who is ashamed. He chooses to use old Sarah, not young Hagar. He chooses Leah, who Jacob doesn't love, not Rachel. Rahab, the foreign prostitute, Elizabeth, John's the Baptist's mother, who for her whole life couldn't have children. Why? Over and over again, God says, I'll choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I'll choose the girl nobody wants. I'll choose the boy everybody has forgotten. Is that just because God likes underdogs and he likes a cool sob story? No. God is telling us something about salvation itself. Because every philosophy and every religion says, here's how we can be saved, whatever way they define salvation. Here's how we can be saved. Summon up all your strength, live like this, and then you can be saved. But Jesus comes and says, you can't do that. You're not able to do that. I have come to show you how to, not how to summon up your strength so that you can find God. I have come as God to find you. Therefore, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you through what I do, not what you do. And that means that while all other religions might try and appeal to what we can do, appeal to us to find some inner strength in ourselves, only Jesus says, I have come for the weak and for those who admit that they are weak. He comes to give that strength within ourselves. And not only did Jesus come for the weak, Jesus came as the weak. He came as the one who was looked down on. He was just a boy from Nazareth, but he was God's promised king. So if you can relate to that, if you feel like maybe you're not all that special, you're not sure how God can use you or how God is using you, um, if you struggle with sin in yourself and you don't see yourself as being a remarkable person, or if you've come from roots that you would rather forget, then you are exactly the sort of person that God wants and God uses. He knows every weakness that you have and he loves you despite those weaknesses. And if you don't know him yet, then he is calling you to accept those promises that he has made. He is calling you to commit your life to him. He's saying that he wants your life and he wants to transform your life and make you into the image of his son, Jesus. And if you're already on that journey, then he calls you to continue in relying on him, in giving your all to him. So as you watch him grow and transform and shape your life into the image of Jesus, to be more like Jesus, you can observe and glorify him and follow him out of love and in response to him, not out of an obligation 
to find some inner strength in yourself. So when we think of Christmas, the standard picture might be plenty of food, happy families and relaxing days and presents and happiness and that is a great part of Christmas and that is something which I hope many of us are going to go and enjoy and we're going to celebrate and honour God through as we spend time relaxing with our families and our friends. But as we go into that, let's remember that the Christmas story isn't about a young King Jesus coming and relaxing and celebrating and living a life of plenty and joy. No, the Christmas story is about God himself coming down as a young child, fulfilling all of these promises that he has made about who he would be as the coming Messiah. And it's about him coming and living through these terrible things that happen in his life. He lives through an escape to a foreign land. He lives through fleeing from a murderous, evil king. He grows up in a humble, forgettable town so that we could have a way to be made right with him. And if you don't feel like you fit into the classic postcard Christmas picture, if you're feeling like you aren't clean on the inside or the outside, then God knows you, he loves you, and he understands where you are at because he has been there and he has been there for you. He has made a promise that he will be with you always. He will always be caring for you and guiding you until the day when he will return in glory to forever heal this world. And our God is a God who keeps his promises throughout any odds. We're going to praise God with our voices in just a moment, uh, with the words of an old carol, which many of you would know, uh, celebrating the birth of the promised king, the first Noel. Now, the word Noel actually comes from a word meaning birth. So as we sing this, let's keep in mind the incredible good news that the birth of Jesus is. That God has kept his promise to send a saviour, to send this perfect king. Let's praise him who is above all things, yet who came down to be the lowest of the low, so that we might be made right with him. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. We thank you that you have come and brought salvation into this world, Lord. We thank you that you have kept your promises, Lord, that every single promise you made about your coming Messiah has been fulfilled in Jesus. We thank you for the way that you have reached down to us, Lord, and the way that you welcome us in that you know us and that you love us. We pray that you will be with us as we go from here, that we will be filled with a knowledge of who you are, that we'll be filled with an awareness of your presence, and that we'll go from here into a week where we celebrate Christmas, knowing you, growing in you, and glorifying you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Church, let's stand. And as Nathaniel said, let's respond by singing of the story of Christmas, the first Noel, born is the King. Noel, the angel did say, was a certain poor shepherds in fields and